Uh, so as we're looking at uh, this Christmas story, the, the, the title of the sermon is The Family Tree. And I know you guys are thinking, oh boy, this is going to be a sweet Christmas story to sit down next to the campfire and relax and listen to The Family Tree. Well, it isn't about The Family Tree. It's it's about the family tree, you know. It's, it's about the genealogies, uh, the genealogies of Jesus. Because this is the way Matthew starts his Christmas story by giving us all the genealogies. And I know you're thinking, "Oh boy, this is going to be a long sermon." It is. I went 15 minutes over last night. <laughs> it's going to be. So let's read the passage, and then we'll go through uh, this uh, the genealogies of Jesus as we're looking at the Christmas story. Because this is what Matthew put at the beginning of the Christmas story. He says this. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Minadab, Minadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. <coughs> Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Adijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. A husband of Mary, whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there are 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. <clears throat> so as we look at this, we want to look at this um, genealogies um, in context. And what I mean by in context is that we live in our culture, which is, you know, America and and we approach life a little bit different. And the reason why is because we live in an individualistic um, society is what it is. So when you live in an individualistic society, is it, you build your life on what you accomplish. What I accomplish is, is who I am. You build your life on, on what you can complete. You build your life on what you make. You build your life on what you look like. And, and that's an individualistic society. So when you go and apply for your job, what do you do? You say, well, this is what I accomplished. This is who, I, what I've done. And this is all the experience. And this is the education I have. That's the way that we end up selling ourselves. When you look at uh, the Bible, it lives under a collectivistic society, which means that it's not about what you do that makes you who you are. It's about where you came from. Wherever you came from is who you are. Your life is your society. You see all these genealogies that go all the way through the Bible. Um, we skip them when we read them. It's like, okay, First Chronicles, you got six chapters of genealogies. We just fly through them. It's like, okay, I got to take a break because I'm not going to read every single one of these genealogies. But back in the Old Testament, they're like, whoa, look at these genealogies. I mean, this is what, this is what, makes, this is what makes people important. This is what makes people strong. This is what makes people powerful. This is what makes people weak. Because it's all about the blood. It's all about the blood and where you came from. And we talk about this with royal blood. All the kings. Who becomes a king? The one who has royal blood. They don't just pick a king because you're a good guy. You don't bring your resume and say, hey, look, you know, I wonder if I could apply for a king. No, what they do is they look back through the genealogies and say, okay, there is the next king because he's got royal blood. Well, that's at the top. 
But if you go further down, everybody else is doing the genealogy thing as well. Well, I'm in the elite category. Why? Because I came from the elite category. And as a result of coming from the elite category, I continue in the elite category. You know, I'm in the rich category. How do you have have rich blood? Well, because when you have a family back in these days, the blood, the riches all just kept going down. In in fact, uh, it was just, okay, this is what I've done. This is what I've accomplished. And then I keep on passing. I keep on passing. I keep on passing. And they also lived with each other in the process of doing that. So be like, oh, you're from that family. Oh, that, you must be wealthy. Why? Because you're from that family. Oh, you're poor. (laughs) Oh, you, you don't have anything. Why? How do I know? Well, because I know your heritage. I know where you came from. You never, never really amounted to anything because your heritage never really amounted to anything. So what these genealogies are, is these genealogies is, is like a resume back in these days. And if you're applying for a job, what do you do? You bring your resume. Back in these days, you, here I am. Look who I came from. Look who my great, 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 great grandfather was. Look who my great grandfather was. Look who my dad was. And what you do is you sell yourself on what was behind you. So here we have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that is coming to earth Christmas. So what does Matthew do? <laughs> he presents the world Jesus' resume, Jesus' qualifications for being the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so when you look at this resume, it's going to give his qualifications from a worldly point of view. And as you're looking at these qualifications of Jesus, there's some things that's going to shock you when we go through it. I just read it, but you might miss it. If you, if you look at these, you're going to see that there's racial outsiders inside of this. There's racial outsiders. You don't want racial outsiders <laughs> inside of your resume. It's not a really good thing to have. People used to monkey with the resume. In fact, King Herod was accused of monkeying with his resume. Racial outsiders? <laughs> you know, I, need, I, need to, I need to actually push them aside. Why? Because he's going to be King Herod. He needs royal blood. And if he doesn't have complete royal blood, he's going to take some family members and like, oh, yeah, they're not, they're not, they're not. This is who I am. He's monkeying with his resume. He's fixing it to make them all right. What's interesting is that when you get these racial outsiders, which are Gentiles, Moabites, Canaanites, Hittites, they're all mentioned in here is that Matthew puts them down. <laughs> it's bold letters. The other thing that's in this genealogy, Jesus' genealogy, that I don't know if you notice or not, but there's five ladies in the genealogy. I mean, that would be completely um, uh, legit, you know, in regards to today's society. It'd be the way it is, but not in these days. These days, no, it's just it's the men that you put in the society. But in, as Matthew's writing this genealogy, he's putting... He's putting ladies inside as well. They're there. But the most shocking thing is you go through this, um, this uh, genealogy is there's moral outsiders in it. In fact, there's a lot of immoral things and moral people that are behind the lineage of Jesus. Now, if there's immoral things behind the lineage of Jesus, you would think that Matthew would try to not say it that loud. But he does. Look at verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Who's Tamar? Tamar was a, a widowed daughter-in-law of Judah who disguised herself as a prostitute to get Judah because Judah was a low-life scum and, we, and knew that I could get a baby from him. 
So she ended up getting a baby from him because she didn't want to be connected to her husband who died. And she got the baby from him, Perez. And what takes place? Well, he's in the line of Jesus. Matthew mentioned, you could, you, could, you could have left that one out. What do you mean you could have left out? The crazy thing about having Tamar in there, because she's a lady and you still put her in there. The th- crazy thing about it is that Judah should not have been sleeping with a prostitute in the first place. And Tamar shouldn't have acted like a prostitute. And daughter-in-law should not be sleeping with a father-in-law. But the most shocking thing about all that is that Matthew recorded it. <laughs> he put her in there. Don't forget Tamar. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you shove under the rug when you start writing your resume. But Matthew doesn't shove it under the rug. Look at verse 5. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Who's Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. So Israelites people come, and she helped Israelites come to conquer Jericho. But he's in the family tree. He didn't have to put Rahab, but he did put Rahab in there. I mean, yeah, Rahab's part of it, but he didn't need to put it there. He does. Verse 5 again, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was who? Ruth. You remember Abraham and Lot? They split directions. Lot was a mess. He was a guy who impregnated his daughters while he was drunk. And his whole culture after him continued to do that. And he called him Moab. There's a place of Moab, and she was a Moabite. Oh, don't forget Ruth. You could have forgot Ruth, Matthew. You could have. You, you didn't have to put her there, but he puts her there anyway. And then look at verse 6. Matthew does something crazy. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Finally, there's some royal blood behind Jesus. King David. It's good. And then he says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. What? Uh, who's Uriah? Uriah was one of the strongest soldiers that David had who was fighting David's battle while David is home sleeping with his wife. And then she gets pregnant, and after she gets pregnant, David's in trouble. So he calls Uriah back and says, go sleep with your wife, because I don't want anybody to catch me. And what happens is he doesn't. He says, I'm too strong of a soldier. As long as they're on the field, I'm with you, David, because I'm loyal to you. David's not being loyal to him. And since he's loyal to David, and David was being, he was being so loyal to David, David had to get him out of there, so he gave him a card and says, all right, take this to uh, the general of the army. That card was his death sentence. And then he died. Matthew put this passage in there to slam King David. I mean, why else would you put down, it should just say Bathsheba, if you're going to mention the lady, but why would you say Uriah's wife is the one that is coming behind. Matthew's saying it all. Why bring up the family dirt when you're trying to make Jesus look good? Why bring up the family dirt when it should be stuff under the rug? We would do it. You don't write a resume like this. You know, reading this story reminds me of a story uh, when I was raising kids. I uh, um, wanted to raise kids the best I possibly could. So I'm like, and I had three days off with the kids where it was just me while my wife went to work. And boy, did we have a fun time. I bought a backpack, and my kids were in a backpack while I chopped wood, while I mowed the lawn, while I worked with the cows. I mean, it, that we, just, we just went all day. And I also said, whatever, dad, whatever my wife does, I'll do it too. Change all the diapers, I do whatever it takes. 
One thing that always landed on my days, because I had the days off during the week, is doctor's appointments. I'll never forget going to a doctor's appointment when Maddie was about four years old. And, uh, and she, you know, the doctor talks to her and the doctor looks and says, we got immunizations here. And, and then she says, okay, I'm done talking with you. I'm going to actually talk with your dad now. And I'm going to start asking him some questions. And um, I said, oh, okay, yeah, we'll take the questions. And this, this doctor believed that human beings just live on grass. I mean, it's, I mean, she was very healthy. We'll just put it that way. And she looked at me and says, okay, um, I just wanted to know that in your family, do you, um, you have a well-balanced diet, you know, for your, your child? I said, oh, oh, absolutely. We got a complete well-balanced diet. And Maddie says, we had McDonald's before we came here, Dad. I was like, you don't need to tell me you had McDonald's before you came here. It's like, but we don't do it every day. So we did it yesterday too, Dad. And I'm like, she goes, you shouldn't feed your kids McDonald's. There's no nutritional value. And I kind of got a lecture about that. You know, you should actually take, you know, well-balanced diets. Okay, that's fine. I'll get that. So, so you have a well. Since you have a well, um, do you have a filter that's on your system? Says, oh, yeah, we've got a filter on our system. So they drink from that? Yeah, they drink from that. Of course they drink from that. No, we don't, Dad. We drink from the water hose. I'm like, you don't drink from the water hose. Now you live on the water hose. Yeah, we do, Dad. When we're out working, sometimes we just drink from the water hose. And the doctor looks at me and says, you shouldn't have your kids drink from the water hose. That's not a filter system that's going to take place. And I'm like, okay. Seatbelt. Do you, do, you, do you wear a seatbelt? Of course my kids wear a seatbelt. Not when I'm driving, Dad. I'm like, you are four. You don't drive. Yeah, I do, Dad. When I sit on your lap, you let me steer when I go to Papa Nana's house. That happens like once in a lifetime. You know that's not safe, sir. I'm like, yeah, I know that's not safe. You know, that, that's, that's fine. I understand that. Okay, I'll, I'll fix that. We won't do that anymore. Do you have any guns in the house? I said, yeah, I, I have some guns in the house. Are they, are they locked? Oh, you know, they're, yeah, they're back in a cabinet that no kid can find. So yeah, they're, they're locked. No, they aren't, dad. I'm like, well, you can't find them. Yeah, we can, dad. That's where we hide and go seek. They're all sitting right there. The doctor looks at me and says, well, hopefully we don't have ammo with them. I said, yeah, I keep mine cocked and loaded. I'm just kidding. I don't. But sure enough, you need to be able to lock those guns. I'm like, okay, 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 okay. It, so we left the doctor's office and I didn't say it because he's four. But I wanted to say it. You don't have to tell the doctor everything. It's exactly what Matthew. You didn't have to tell the world everything when it comes to the Messiah. But he did. Brought it all up. All on display. So the question would be, why? Why did he put Uriah in the line, it said, just Bathsheba. I mean, he could have easily said, and David, the one who killed Goliath and became king of Israel, was conceived a son who is the wisest person on the planet. He could have said that, and Jesus could have looked so good. But he didn't. He spoke in a different way. He gave all the dirt. Why? I came up with about 75 reasons why. <laughs> so we're just going to mention about four of them. And as we look at them, we're going to go through them fast because uh, it's going to take a long time. Number one, this is why he did it. Jesus doesn't need anybody to make him great. He's just great. Doesn't need King David to make him great. 
doesn't need Abraham. He doesn't need Isaac. He doesn't need Jacob. He doesn't need Moses. He doesn't need anybody to make him great. He does not need you to make him great. He's just great. Matthew wrote this book about 10 years after Jesus was died, rose, and ascended into heaven. Rose again and ascended into heaven. 10 years afterwards, the greatest revival of mankind was taking place right then. And it was come from just one simple message. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose, and he's the answer. The greatest revival. Jesus is great and people are dying, being martyred as a result to how powerful the message of Jesus was. And what Matthew is doing in this genealogy is saying, he stands alone. He's different. He stands above his family. He stands alone in his own category. He's God. Number two, Jesus doesn't bring the excluded into his family. Jesus brings the excluded into his family. Excluded culture, excluded those from respective society, excluded from the law. How many kings bring the excluded into their family? How many kings that take the position of power open their eyes up and say, give me all the excluded and I want to bring them in? What Matthew is saying is saying that Jesus is on a different mission than your culture. He's on a different mission than the world that you live in, the sinful world that you live on. He's on a mission that is going backwards from society, bringing the people in that shouldn't come in, taking the people as his family that probably shouldn't be the people from his family. And then you see it all the way through the Gospels as Jesus is living. Who's, he, who's his friend with? A friend of sinners, holding the tax collectors to be his disciples. Prostitutes mentions this consistently all the way through. I will take the prostitutes in. And then you have the spiritual elite says, what are you doing, Jesus? You're not supposed to take the prostitute in. Oh my goodness, the prostitute touched Jesus. I mean, there's so much that there's a reaction to the elite in the world when Jesus walked on the planet because he was so different. He was a king that didn't act like a king should in the world that we live in today. It acted the opposite way of the kingship. Number three, Jesus was not ashamed of his family. And Matthew just puts it on paper. You know, Jesus never speaks one negative word against his family all the way through the Bible. I mean, this is the word of God, this genealogy that Matthew put down. God wanted to say, I am not ashamed of my family. How many of you guys have ever been ashamed of your family? I'm sorry, I have to admit, maybe, maybe I'm the only one that's ashamed, could be ashamed of my family. I, I mean, we had the, the Oldsmobile with the panel and on the side, um, a car that had a, a tire that clunked every time it turned over, clunk, 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 clunk. So they knew when the Diderish wagon was driving down the road because we lived in a small town, so everybody knew us. Clunk, 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 clunk. And whenever I went to school, you could hear me going to school, clunk, 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 all the way through. And yes, I'm sorry, I was the person that said, Mom, can you park down the road so I can walk to school by myself? She said, well, why would you do that? And I said, because maybe I want a girlfriend one day. You know, it's like, come on, Mom. Uh, my dad, I, I, I love him to death, but he, uh, um, he had a massive stroke when I was um, an eighth grader, my, my freshman year after my eighth grade. 
and uh, it paralyzed his right side. Now, my dad was a very strong individual, and uh, he worked out at sea for 25 years as chief engineer on a tugboat. And so he's gone months at a time, and he supported us um, that way. So he's really rough. But when he had a stroke, it completely changed his personality to, to very, very um, emotional. So he is uh, paralyzed on the right side. And I remember going to the, the hospital after he had a stroke. And uh, the doctor said, you know, in three days, um, we'll see if he's actually going to live or not. Because he has such a large blood clot in his neck. And if that thing moves, then, then he's not going to make it. So I was thinking, I'm going to lose my dad, you know, when I was a freshman in high school. And, um, and sure enough, waiting for it. But it didn't happen. One year, two years, three years, four years. My dad lived 26 years after that massive stroke that he had. He was paralyzed on his right side for about 10 years. And then he had another surgery that paralyzed him on his left side, or his left arm. So he was on a, he was on a, a walker. And as again, he was extremely uh, emotional and extremely loud. I mean, just very, very boisterous, you know, after this stroke. But just kind of show you the kind of blood that I have is that uh, they put a, um, they put a uh, defibrillator inside of him. And I'm thinking, oh boy, this is probably going to be close to the end. They put a defibrillator inside of him and the defibrillator went off. Um, and after the defibrillator went off, of course, he went to the hospital and the doctor looked at him a couple days later because he lived through it. And said, did you feel any shock or anything? He goes, no, I, I didn't feel anything. And then they sent him home. The defibrillator went off again. The defibrillator went off four different times. And I'm thinking, we're going to lose him. His heart's not making. He lived five years after that. So my dad is about as tough as nails. But his whole body was like, is like completely dead. In fact, uh, he died in uh, 2015. When he died, the doctor went in there and looked at him. And they came back to the family and says, oh my goodness, have you seen his, we need to amputate his leg. We, I was like, no, don't amputate his leg. Don't, don't, don't do anything like that. The, no blood circulation has been going for 26 years. Just, just take care of him. And he ended up dying that time in the hospital. But boy, he was loud and he was often obnoxious. And I got lots of different stories about dad. I mean, when dad sneezed, you know, he didn't have his arm. He just let it loose. And I tell you, it flew. I remember sitting at a Thanksgiving table one time and he's like, look out. And it, I saw the, I saw the, the wave of juice fly clear across the, the dining, the, the Thanksgiving dinner table. And we're like, dad, can't you hold it? Do something. And, and, ah, you guys are fine is what he, what he would say. He used to, Mom used to always kick him out of the house to walk. This was kind of the early days. Says, you got to walk. You're going to die with your stroke. If you don't get blood circulated, get to walk. So there was a fight every single day, all day. You go walk. I'm not going to walk. You walk. I'm not going to walk. Well, he would. And he'd go down there, and he would go to the different restaurants, and he'd have coffee. He got kicked out of every single restaurant in town. <laughs> and I'm being honest. He did. I know why he got kicked out, because when I was in high school, he goes, I'm going to go down and have coffee, son. You want to go with me? And I'm like, sure, go down and have coffee with my dad. And uh, as we're going down there, he says, I got this girl I want you to meet. And I'm like, okay. So we, sure enough, we sat in the coffee bar, and and, and she comes up. And says, there she is, so loud that the whole story. She's single. She doesn't have anybody. My son's single. He doesn't have anybody either. And it was just loud as possibly be. The whole restaurant was going, what's going on? And, and after she left, I looked at her and said, Dad, I'm 17. She's about 40. This is illegal. You don't just keep quiet. 
I didn't necessarily go to coffee with him anymore. Um, I remember the time my brother is a worship pastor. He was just up here a little while ago. I remember the time that we went wood chopping up in the hills. And uh, when we came down, had a 1972 truck that always broke down. And sure enough, we got down. We got it to the edge of town, and it broke down. And so my brother and I, we lifted up the hood, and we looked into it, acting like we knew what we were doing. And I guess we didn't know what was wrong with it. And, and a police officer showed up. And uh, he goes, you guys all right? I said, yeah, we're, we're just kind of broke down, wondering what's going on. He goes, well, I have a phone if you want to call um, somebody to come pick you up. I said, yeah, sure, we'll call my mom. She'll come pick us up. So I uh, grabbed the phone, and I called, and I got the answer machine. She was at the neighbor's house. And I said, hey, mom, we're broke down at such and such place. Do you mind just coming picking us up? That's what I said on the answer machine. And my dad was home alone, and he heard it. Now, just to get the picture, is that my dad doesn't have a driver's license. My dad is paralyzed. On the right side, my dad doesn't have any car insurance, but in his mind, he says, I'm going to go get my kids. I'm going to go get them. So he goes out into the car. Well, while we're back there looking underneath the hood, the police officer ended up saying, well, you know you're not too far away. How about if I just give you a drive home? And we said, yeah, that sounds good idea. So my brother and I, we hopped into the back of the police car. And then the police officer drove us home. And we made it home. And when he pulled into our driveway, my dad put it in reverse and smashed right into the back of the police car. <laughs> We're like, Dad! Now, we knew the issue. Police officer walks out of the car and says, uh, looks at it after he backs up. He had a big old rubber bumper there. And he goes, well, there's no damage. I think he knew the situation. So I'm getting out of here. He probably didn't want to do the paperwork. He got back in the car and he took off. But that was my dad. Whatever you do, we just, we just do it. We're going to make it happen. And boy, was he loud in that process. Well, sure glad my family's not like that. You know what my kids always accuse me of? Dad, you're acting like grandpa. And, and out of the, out of the four, out of the, uh, the three kids in our family, I guess I act like grandpa more than others. Mom, dad won't stop acting like grandpa. And I tell him in my defense, it's like, you just wait till after my stroke. I'm going to show you real grandpa. <laughs> If you guys are going to fight me this way, we must have been ashamed of our families. You know what's interesting is, is that when I look back at all those dad stories, those are the richest memories I have, is the craziness of life. Those are the loving memories I have, is the craziness of life. Those are things that I don't forget about. Those are things that make me build love for him in the process of even dwelling on them. Here's Jesus' family. All the hard times in life, all the struggling in life, all the sin in life, all the ugly in life. I'm not ashamed of you. That's what he said. You know what's the amazing thing about this? Is that when we go to heaven, this earth is going to be talked about. And we know it because he still has a nail scar's hand and the, uh, the spear in his side. And he even says in Ephesians that the heavens will declare the history in the past. So if you think about that, grace is going to be talked about all the way through the family. Or all the way through eternity. And when we look at grace, we're going to feed on it for eternity. And the only place there's going to be grace is here on this planet. As the dirt's going to be brought up. You're going to see the hand of God. You're going to see the grace. You're going to see the beauty of God. You're going to see the character of God. 
And as we know him, as we see him face to face, we're going to know him. That's why he says the word will last forever because the word carries grace. The word carries mercy. The word carries a love that's unconditional. When he says, I love you, he will always love you. That's why we're going to talk about it all the way through. Number four, Jesus came to set the captives free. This is the reason why Matthew wrote the way he did in his genealogy. He's communicating a very large statement because he talks about all the genealogies and then in verse 17, he makes this powerful punch that you might not quite understand until I explain it, but everybody in those days understood. It was this. Thus, there were 14 generations and all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. We can look at it and say, oh, 14, 14, 14. Uh, Just add it up. Okay, that's all the way through the Old Testament. But what is the 14, 14, 14? The 14, 14, 14 is the seventh seven. So you have 14, you have two sevens. Another 14, two sevens. Another 14, two sevens. That'd be six. And Jesus came as what? The seventh seven. Seven is identified with being finished, complete, divine perfection. So when they read all that and they got the back passage, he's the seventh seven. Standing above and beyond all of them in perfection. See, these people back these days, they knew the Old Testament. The Old Testament, seven had a number that was consistent all the way through the Old Testament. I mean, we, we know a little bit. I mean, just in a sense of six days of creation, what happened? Seventh day, he rested. But when Noah is bringing our, um, animals on the ark for sacrifice, you're supposed to bring how many? Seven. Naaman, dip in to be clean, to water to be clean. Dip how many times? Seven times. Joshua marched around the Jericho. How many times? Seven times before he blew his horn. You have seven stems in the tabernacle. You have seven things the Lord hates. There's seven woes in Matthew. There's forgive 77, 70 times. Forgive 70 times seven. I mean, seven, seven, seven all over the place. And you get to the book of Revelation, what happens? Seven is mentioned 15 times. Right at the top, seven churches, seven angels, seven lampstands, seven stars, seven seals, seven bowls. Seven, 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 divine perfection. I just want to mention one. In the Old Testament, Leviticus, the year of Jubilee. What is the year of Jubilee? Jubilee is what? Every 49 years. What is that? It's the seven cycles of the seventh year. And this is what it says in the Old Testament. The seven cycles after the seven years, you're supposed to set the prisoners free. You're supposed to set all the captives free. You're supposed to forgive all the debts. All the debts are gone. All the slaves are set free. They're reading this genealogy. And at the end, they're connecting with the year of Jubilee. And it's given an explanation who Jesus is. I was up in Salem just yesterday off of, of Cordon Road up there. And there was a church. It says, Jesus, the Jubilee. What does that mean? Jesus is the one that set the captives free. Starting to connect all these dots and who this Jesus is. It's much more than we think he is. Number five, just one more. 
Jesus isn't the runt. The reason why I put down that this week is because last week I said, David is the runt of the letter. Jesus, he's not the, he's not the runt. I want to look at that passage again and, and walk through it. We read this last week and preached it last week. When they, when they came, he looked at Eliab, Eliab and thought, surely the Lord anointed is before you. They're choosing a king and what happens is that Jesse pulls all of his sons in the front as Samuel is going to choose a king. Eliab is the first person that he puts out there. Chorus, there's a king before you. This is my firstborn son. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. You know, I was preaching this last week. I was just looking at the heart of litter. You know, you you got, you have eight, you know, and uh, eight kids. And, And he presents seven, which is a perfect number. Seven is a perfect number. And you get all the way through all the perfect numbers. It should be number one, but you get down to seven. It's still not even seven. And then he asked Jesse, well, do you have another one? He's like, oh yeah, I forgot. But, but he is, I use the word, he's kind of insignificant. He's the, he's the one you forget about. He has no king material in him at all. And he's number eight. <laughs> Jesus came as seven. I'll tell you that David was a man after God's own heart. He only could be seven. He's messed up. Number eight. Last week I called him a runt. When you look at the runt, I think it's kind of like, oh, are you sure David's a runt? I mean, he carried quite a bit of, you know, quite a bit of significance all the way through the Bible. Well, define runt. What does runt mean? I just want to define runt and probably the most horrific words you could possibly define runt. I mean, all the way to the degree. What is define runt as insignificant? Is David insignificant? I mean, from a whole perspective, just think about it. Let me ask you another question. Could have Jesus, or could have God, brought his plan of redemption through without David? If you answer no, then we're not working with a sovereign God who's in control. But if you answer yes, then you say, well, David's insignificant. Because God is going to get his job done no matter who he's working with. It is going to be complete. We often look at these, these, these people in the Bible and we look at them as massive, you know, whoa, this is the most Moses is the most significant person in the Old Testament. Yeah. Think about it. Did Moses take over the promised land? No, he did not take over the promised land. He led the people out of Egypt. And after he led them out of Egypt, they were going to take over the promised land, but they didn't. They circled for 40 years in the desert and then for until they all died. And then all of a sudden they're going to take over the promised land. And what does God say? God says, I'm not going to let you do it. I'm going to have somebody else do it. 
And who does he pick? Joshua. Now this is a time that you tell God, it's like, God, if you have trained Moses this long, Moses is the man for the job. But Moses was never the man for the job. God was doing the job. I'm going to let you come to glory, Moses. And then I am still going to go to Joshua. You look at every single Old Testament story, there's one common denominator and one being in every single Old Testament story among all these champions of the Old Testament. Who is it? It's God. And if he's there, they win. If he's not, they're not. But it's in regards to his, his choosing. So God is going to get his job done. But in our world, we do think God can't do it without me. We also think, my goodness, I carry such a significant role that this whole church would fall apart if it does, if I'm not here. Let me tell you who was one to be significant. There was this couple in the Garden of Eden, and uh, the guy's name was Adam. I think the guy's name was, the lady's name was Eve. And the serpent came up to him, and the serpent came up to him. The serpent said to them, you want to be as wise as God? What does that mean? Do you want to be significant? Do you want to be like God, knowing good and evil? What does that mean? Do you want to be significant? What was Satan doing? He was pulling away from their connection to God, the significant one. And as soon as he did, what was their, what was their doom? Death. And then they passed from death all the way through the next generation after generation after generation. So when we look at this concept, was David significant? Was Moses significant? Was Abraham significant? Or were they connected to significance? And as a result of being connected to significance, God did his work through them. There is a big difference. There's a huge difference to me, Mike Dadera being significant or to being connected to significance. And the message of the Bible is we're all not significant, but we're connected to significance. So what are we supposed to do? Isaiah 66 says this, thus saith the Lord, heaven and earth is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things may, my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. What does that mean? It means God is significant. <laughs> That's what it means. And in a significant position, he says these words. But this is the one whom I will look. I'm as significant as could be. And I'm going to go down and I'm going to look. Who does he look at? He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. Was David significant? I would say David was humble and contrite in spirit and trembled at his word. So the significant to take off and work, which would be God. Now, this is important information for us, and the reason why it is is because, number A, the Christian life is not about being striving for, for, for significance. It's about being connected to significance. That's what the Christian life is. 
We have to think, I've got to strive for significance in the kingdom of God. It's not about you striving for significance. It's about being connected with significance so God can work in and through you to the whole world. Do you know why we strive for significance? I mean, I'm, I'm going to bring this up. We're all human here, so I can fit in the, I can fit in the boat as well. Um, the reason why we strive for significance is because we have broken relationships in our past that actually need to be mended. And we really don't want to deal with it. We have people in our past that we should be asking for forgiveness. And we really don't want to go ask for forgiveness. We have dirt in our past that we do not want to face. And as a result of that, God, let me be a preacher. God, let me be significant. And the reason why is because we don't want to mess with this. But this is the one I look, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my words. That's where all the work is done. And in the process of doing that, Jesus will take you in areas that you would not believe. And you would be apologizing to people that you would not believe you'd ever. You would be forgiving people that you would not ever think about forgiving. Why? Because we are slamming to the bottom of the depths of God and say, you are significant and I am connected to significant. Speak to me. Oh, look out. You don't know what's going to happen. I'm a pastor. <laughs> As a result, I just, I just I have nothing, God. He's like, I know. I want you lower, 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 lower. It's like, I don't know where we're going, God. It's like, I don't care. And oh, think of the freedom with not being significant. Tell you, I take it. I just want you to know. We spend our whole lives judging ourselves. Why? Because we want to be significant. We spend our whole lives condemning ourselves. Why? Because, because we want to be significant. We spend our whole lives observing ourselves and get disgusted with observing ourselves. Why? Because you want to be significant Drop all of it because there's only one who's significant. It is God. And as soon as you drop all of it, you're not significant. You are connected with significant. So somebody could come up to me and say, Mike, you're a hypocrite. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Nobody knows that more than I do. But let me tell you who's not. <laughs> He's not. And then hand him Jesus. Mike, I, I noticed that you lie. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. I try not to, and I want to fight it. I want to stop it. Please forgive me. I am an absolute mess, but let me tell you something. I know somebody who has never lied. Let me tell you who he is. And then you bring a right friend. You know, Mike, that was a, a lousy sermon. I know. I try every single week. But you know what? Last week was the five days of prayer. So since last week, I, I spent 40 hours in prayer last week. I had no time to study for my sermon. So that's why it's a bad. What do you do? You're defending yourself. Just look at him and say, <laughs> I know. I'm insignificant. But let me tell you something. I'm connected to significance. You want to hear a good sermon. 
you'll see it in Matthew 5. <laughs> you want to hear a good sermon. You open up the word of God and he speaks that powerful. Just think of all of us. We're just like, we're not trying to be significant anymore. We're just connected with significant. What is that message going to tell the world? You know what that message is going to tell the world? That Christians are messed up. But they're connected to significance. Because everybody in their mind said, I'm messed up and I can't come, come, to, come to the church because if I walk in church, then I'd have to be significant. No, you're not. None of us are. We're connected to significance. And that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. We read the Bible often wrong. We look at these Old Testament heroes and, and we look at them and we say, be like David, you know. Be like Abraham, you know, uh, be like Moses. And that's the teaching it takes. You need to be like them. Be like David. When? When he killed Goliath or when he slept with Bathsheba? I mean, tell me when I have to be, be like David. You know, be like Abraham. When? You know, when he was scared that he would die. So he said, yeah, my wife is actually my sister. So Pharaoh, you could take her. Or when he was pulled the knife and ready to sacrifice his son because God told him to. You know, when do we do it? What the Old Testament is about is it's about messed up people and how God deals with messed up people. Luke 24 says this. Jesus is walking on the road of Aramaeus. He says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke. This is Jesus speaking. I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses. What? What's the law of Moses about? According to that passage, it's about Jesus. He just said the words. Everything written about me, Jesus, speaking in the law of Moses. And the prophets. What's the prophets about? He says it's about Jesus. And the Psalms must be fulfilled. Law of Moses, law of the prophets, law of the Psalms. Everything has to be fulfilled. What has to be fulfilled? Then he opened their minds to understand the Old Testament and said to them, Thus it is written that... That Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. He just claimed the whole Old Testament. It's all written about me. It's all written about me. You see the hand of God in their lives, and I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever, so you know me by reading the Old Testament, by understanding it. Number six, Jesus was born into a messed up family to change the messed up world. He stands alone. He's God. Leaves heaven, comes to earth as God, lives a perfect life, dies for the sins of the world, and raises again so we can be saved. Charles Spurgeon says, a child, a virgin, what a mixture. There's the finite and the infinite. There's the mortal and the immortal, the corruption, the incorruptible, in the incorruption, the manhood and the Godhead, time married into eternity, God linked with a creature whom earth could not hold, and the heavens could not contain him. Lying in his mother's arms, he was fastened to the pillars of the universe and riveted the nails of creation, hanging on mortal breasts, depending on creature for nourishment. O marvelous birth, O marvelous conception, we stand and gaze and admire. When you look at this genealogy, Jesus is accepting those into his family. But there's only a certain amount of people that he's going to accept into his family. And if you look at that genealogy, it's just not the best genealogy in the world. But I'll tell you, he will accept them. 
It's almost like all the way through you go the Old Testament, you get all these genealogies and stories, and it goes all the way through, and all of a sudden it gets to Joseph, and and God says, Joseph, stand aside. Let me claim my family. Let me take my family as a king of kings, as their king of kings and their Lord of Lords. And today he's still accepting people in, but I'll tell you, he only accepts certain people in. Certain people in. Not everybody, just certain people. Who are these certain people? This is the certain people. Those who believe. You want to be a part of God's family? Don't be perfect because you can't. That's what we walk all the way through life. You know, I've, I've got to be like David. I can't be like David. I got to, well, who do I be like? Do I be like Jesus? <laughs> yeah, whatever. You can't be like Jesus. There's no way. He's perfect. And if he's perfect, you can't be like him. But that's not the message of the Bible. He accepts the person that says, I am not perfect. It says this, I am a sinner. That's what these persons he accepts. You want to be in the family of God? I am a sinner. Next thing you need to do is you need to say, I'm a, I need a savior. Jesus died. You believe it. Right, justification. That means you, sin, is, justice was done for your sin. Jesus rose for your sanctification. It means that he made you completely clean. And Jesus is the one that's going to come for your glorification, meaning that you can see him face to face. What does that have to do with all my baggage? This is the only thing it has to do with your baggage. Your baggage is washed away. And you're made brand new when you're born again. That's the power of the Christmas message. (laughs) That's why we're all excited to celebrate. God came to earth to save us. It was Jesus that does it. God, thank you so much for sending your only begotten son. You came to earth to die in our stead. You rose again, God, for our sanctification, making us completely clean. One day we will see you face to face. God, as we live in this earth of sin, garbage, death, family issues that are constant all the way around. I just pray, God, that we go where we need to go. Humble ourselves. Have a broken and contrite heart and tremble at your word so you will work on us and so we'll understand what you've done for us. We love you, God. In Christ's name, amen.